today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. The U.S. and Mexico have reached a deal, and Canada now heads back to NAFTA talks. Uh, is this better or uh, worse for Canada? Does it matter the, the order of which all of this went down? Here's what President Donald Trump had to say. I like to call this deal the United States-Mexico Trade Agreement. I think it's an elegant name. I think NAFTA has a lot of bad connotations for the United States because it was a ripoff. It was a deal that was a horrible deal for our country. All right, let's bring in Christoph Pelk, political science professor, McGill University, and is with us now. Uh, Christoph, thanks so much for the time. Much appreciated. Uh, your thoughts on what Donald Trump has been saying over the weekend and the rhetoric and such? Uh, look, this is a bit of a good news and bad news situation. So on the one hand, um, there's progress. And the most contentious file in the negotiations namely this question of rules of origin with the car industry in Mexico, appears to have been resolved. And that's good for, well, the negotiations, actually good for Canada, maybe especially good for your listeners in the Hamilton region, insofar as it might favor car manufacturers in Canada. The, the bad news is that, well, this is a deal that appears to be a little more trade restrictive than trade expansive as compared to the current deal. So it makes it harder for products like cars to be deemed uh, NAFTA eligible. And of course, the, the really bad news is that we don't know where Canada sits in this. Uh, and so Canada has very uh, little time to decide whether it wants to join or not this preliminary agreement. Uh, it appears, or, or certainly over the last uh, a couple of weeks, uh, President Trump is, is trying to make it look like Canada has sort of been pushed out, that uh, this is a deal that Mexico and the U.S. are working on, and then you know he's sort of blowing off Canada that they're on the sidelines, and now it's up to us to accept all of this. Talk a little bit uh, of the actual policy and what's going on versus the rhetoric. Yeah, so we've seen this before. Recall that just about a year ago, the, the situation was inversed, meaning that Trump was threatening to leave out Mexico from a bilateral deal with Canada. And at that time, Canada stood by uh, its, its third ally in, in NAFTA, stood by Mexico, and Mexico is doing the same now. So this really appears to be another, uh, kind of we've seen it before, classic move in terms of putting pressure on Canada. And so I would, I would classify this as mostly uh, rhetoric, especially that the legal hurdles for the Trump administration to try and exclude Canada from this, whatever you want to call it, New Deal, uh, would be high. The Republican Party is against this idea. The Republicans want Canada on board. The U.S. Chamber of Commerce wants Canada on board. Mexico wants Canada on board. And so we can really think of this mostly as a negotiating tactic. Why deal with Mexico first and push Canada to the outside? Was that because there was issues that had to be resolved with Mexico first, or is that because they felt Canada wasn't cooperating? So there's a bit of a personal spat maybe with Trudeau from a couple of months ago, but the real reason here is that Mexico was really up against a tight deadline, and the U.S. wanted to exploit that. So... Uh, Mexico is going to see a change of power, and in order for the current president, Peña Nieto, to, send, to, to sign this, rather, uh, before his change of mandate, everything has to be concluded by the end of this week. That's why Canada is also uh, facing the same deadline, is really up against the clock. Uh, the unions appeared to like this. There are, seem to be elements of this deal with Mexico that the unions are happy with. Uh, is this turning out to be uh, a better deal than people thought it was? It, it almost sounds like the president's more of a Democrat than a Republican. Sure. So I think, for instance, someone like Hillary Clinton would have been okay with exactly this same deal. Right? This is also to say that this, there's very little new here. This is very much NAFTA with a small tweak. And yes, it is a tweak that unions uh, might like insofar as it's an effort to bring back some jobs, especially in the auto industry, from Mexico back to the U.S. and therefore back to Canada. So the interesting thing here is that Canada's kind of free riding on the negotiating efforts of the United States. Now, let me just make one quick caveat here. There's a risk, right? By making it harder for products to be deemed NAFTA eligible, uh, you're increasing costs. And you're making the North American supply chain less competitive relative to other supply chains, relative to Asian, 
um, auto manufacturers and European auto manufacturers. So this is kind of a, a calculated uh, risk that the Trump administration is, uh, is doing here. Uh, what, is there any way that Canada could been could have been alongside all of this negotiation to this point? Uh, was there a reason for Donald Trump to divide and conquer, so to speak? Well, it's very much divide and conquer. And, and again, we've seen before, uh, this is an administration in the United States that tries to you know, spend all of its power in the short term. Uh, that said, this idea of negotiating bilaterally and then negotiating multilaterally is not so unusual, except that usually you have more than four days to, uh, well, to decide whether you're joining the, the deal that's been concluded. Right? In this case, Canada does not have the time to renegotiate much of anything. It's, it's closer to a ratification than a negotiation. It simply has to decide whether it's on board or not. So uh, I do not envy Christian Freeland's uh, role in the coming days. She uh, flew into Washington this morning and she has well, uh, three and a half days to, to uh, reach an agreement. So is Canada under the gun now? Could this have been avoided in some way? Um, I doubt it. So this administration, the U.S. administration, was intent on uh, pushing, on using its power in this way. Uh, remember that a few months ago we were talking about whether NAFTA was going to survive at all. And so here we're talking about um, you know, so, so it, it comes down to some issues within the NAFTA deal, but it's very unlikely that the whole agreement will be dissolved. Uh, we'll see some cosmetic changes. We'll see a name change. Why not? Right. Um, Trump is talking about renaming the deal. Um, but this is, a, in a way, an effort to uh, pass the deal within the United States. Right. Trump himself is in a funny situation. He's been railing against this agreement for the past three years. Now he wants to pass an agreement that's very similar to the one that he's been denouncing. So he's going to try and uh, suggest that it's completely different. So back to your question, I don't think there was much that Canada could have, could have done in the last two months. What if Canada says no? Or would there be any reason for them to do that? What, especially when we talk, to, we talk about things like uh, uh, supply management in the dairy sector, this sort of thing. That's right. So... Canada could stall. It could say, you know what, we need more than four days. and That would be a legitimate stance. No one knows what would happen in that case. Uh, it would be a legally unprecedented move if Trump decides to, well, replace NAFTA with this bilateral U.S.-Mexican deal. What that would require would be to dissolve NAFTA, to create a new deal with Mexico. Both those things require the U.S. Congress's approval and the U.S. Congress is not especially interested in either of those things. And so uh, it'd be a bit in legal limbo. So all parties here are kind of constrained. Um, so it's, it's hard to say what would happen if Canada did decide to stall. I think the most likely thing is that Canada will make some maybe small concession that Trump can use to claim that this is a great victory and the world's greatest trade deal. Where does this leave dairy? Where does this leave the auto sector as, as Christia Freeland heads into these negotiations? So the auto sector, again, those uh, interests seem to be largely resolved. Our interests in terms of autos are pretty similar to the United States. And so the deal that they negotiated with Mexico in large measure suits us. Now we can kind of try and, and, and finagle the details, but that's largely settled. Uh, the big question is over something like the dairy industry. The thing to note here is that, you know, as opposed to many of the crazy demands of the U.S. in the past months, things like uh, the Sunset Clause, things like getting rid of Chapter 19, which was the dispute settlement chapter, this demand to liberalize our dairy industry, you know, it's actually the kind of thing that trade agreements are meant to get done. Uh, we do protect our dairy industry to a great extent, and it actually comes to a great cost to the average consumer. Right? The average Canadian household pays an extra $300 in dairy a year as a result of this system. So, again, uh, this is not an outlandish demand compared to the much crazier demands that the Trump administration has been making over the past year.
How did we handle this? I remember when these negotiations first started, uh, there was lots of, of backroom dealings going on, lots of meetings with, with uh, politicians going back and forth. And then all of a sudden, boom, we get to this point where it appears that Canada is, is shoved out of the negotiation. Could we have handled this differently? Look, Canada is, a, is what's called a small open economy. That's what economists call it, meaning that we are highly dependent on trade. Uh, the United States is a large economy. It's much less dependent on trade. It has its huge internal market to fall back on. And as a result, well, we have the, the wrong end of the stick. Unfortunately, we're facing an administration that is trying to exploit that power for all it's worth. Uh, that has, you know, negative long-term consequences, but the U.S. right now don't seem to be especially bothered about the, about the long term. And so I think we've played it um, as good as we could, actually. So I, I wouldn't say that there's much blame on Christopher Freeland or the Trudeau government. Um, they were dealt some pretty, a pretty hard hand, and they played it as best as they could. What about the relationship between Canada and the United States, specifically the prime minister and the president? Uh, understand the prime minister called Donald Trump uh, to discuss this. What would have been said? What, what do you think that relationship is like? What do you think that phone call would have been like? Well, that's, that's an interesting question. Um, I think there's probably a very wide gap between the theater that we've seen in terms of the, of the public rhetoric, especially on, on the Trump administration side, and that actual conversation. I imagine that conversation to be pretty friendly, actually. Uh, again, these are two countries that share a lot of interests in common. If anything, the negotiations with Mexico were the hard ones. Um, we are two, together with the U.S., Canada and the U.S. are two high-wage countries. Uh, we see things alike in many respects. We have a long shared history. We've done this before. Uh, yes, we have some disagreements, but you know that's the that's inevitable when you have a tight um, trade relationship when you're part of this dense commercial ecosystem. And so, so I imagine that call was actually pretty friendly, and um, they discussed how best to, well, suit their respective domestic audiences, right? Both leaders face the same challenge, which is to reach an agreement that they can both pass domestically. So on that note, how do, we, we certainly know how Donald Trump rolls. We, we talked about divide and conquer, lots of rhetoric, uh, getting people back on their heels, uh, all of that sort of thing. Um, over and above that, did he get what he want? Did he get a good deal for his country? Well, I would say that he did not get uh, as good a deal as would be justified by all the threats and all the rhetoric. Right? This is very much the kind of agreement that would have likely been reached uh, by, let's say, a less belligerent administration. So, so no, I don't think that uh, the, the angry rhetoric paid off. It created a ton of uncertainty, and that uncertainty represents a real cost. So during this entire period, you know, if I'm a company in dealing in one of these three countries, I'm not going to invest. I'm going to hold off until I see what happens, right? If I'm uh, either positioned in Canada or the U.S., I, uh, I'd rather wait it out. That has a huge cost on uh, the economy, and we've seen dwindling investment in the U.S. especially. Again, because investors are, are rational. Um, and so... The rhetoric came at a pretty large cost in terms of uncertainty, and I wouldn't say that it yielded that much. Right? Remember, this is an existing agreement. Uh, it's, it's just a renegotiation of an existing agreement. And so to say that it's a great deal is, uh, is a little funny. The deal is already there. Uh, the challenge is not to uh, destroy it. And so hopefully we'll get at that. If you're in the auto industry, how are you feeling today? Places like Toyota and Honda in Ontario, are they concerned over manufacturing percentages and content? So that depends a lot on who you are, where you are in the supply chain. Right? So if you're, if you're Toyota in Ontario, you're probably feeling pretty good about it. Um, because again, you, you, while you have a certain... So you're, you're facing higher costs, potentially. You now have an incentive to bring back some of those jobs uh, into Ontario. If you're an auto parts manufacturer, it gets a little more complicated. So if you're Magna International, a big Canadian company that has 75,000 workers divided evenly across the three NAFTA countries, what you fear is that by making it harder for cars to be NAFTA eligible, 
places, so companies like Toyota might just say, you know what, forget NAFTA. I'm going to pay the 2.5% tariff because that's all that this is all about. I'm going to pay the 2.5%, what's called the MFN tariff, the external tariff. And I'm just going to start importing cheaper car parts from Asia. Right? So that's the big risk here. Did the U.S. buy off more than it could chew with these high standards? Has it made it too hard to satisfy these NAFTA requirements? Mm. Because these companies are going to face also a pretty big bureaucratic nightmare of showing, not to get too much into the details, but of showing that 40% of a given car is made in factories that employ workers at an average of $16 an hour. Right? That's a lot of paperwork. And paperwork is costly. And so uh, you can imagine that these uh, companies are, are, well, are following things very closely. Christoph Palk has been with us, political science professor, McGill University. Christoph, thanks so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Thank you. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. What is birth tourism? The Conservative Party is calling for an end to birthright citizenship, meaning if you are born in Canada, that does not actually mean or automatically mean you are a Canadian citizen. Uh, currently, Canada's new law says anyone who is born in Can- on Canadian soil receives citizenship, even if your parents aren't Canadian citizens. But this law has been highly debated and with some politicians and citizens dubbing it birth tourism. Uh, in March, a petition was uh, sponsored by a Richmond, B.C. resident. It was uh, then taken up by liberal Richmond M- uh, a liberal Richmond MP who said the practice of birth tourism is very costly for taxpayers since it's been used to gain access to Canada's publicly subsidized post-secondary education system and to take advantage of Canada's public health care system and generous social security programs, all without having to contribute much to the funding of these systems and programs. That being said, according to Stats Canada, 313 babies were born to non-Canadian mothers in 2016. That number has gone down significantly since 2010. 12 when the stats can uh, when stats can reported that 699 babies were born to non-canadian mothers is this an issue or is it not let's bring in robert young certified immigration specialist with eisenberg and young and is with us now robert thanks for the time much appreciated no problem is this a problem is this an issue um it's certainly not an issue to anyone in my business Uh, I've been doing immigration and citizenship law for 30 years, and the only people who seem to bring this up as an issue um, are occasionally people like the progressive conservatives. I remember that the progressive conservatives tried something like this about 2014, 2015 under the Harper regime, and the Harper government did change the Citizenship Act, but they sure didn't put this provision in. Uh, this petition, uh, petition supported by a MP uh, uh, liberal from Richmond, uh, Joe Pes- uh, Pesciladio, I believe I'm pronouncing that incorrectly, but he's a liberal MP. Are, is it different depending on what part of the country you're in? Well, we don't see birth tourism um, here. And, and the, rule, the, the policy that the t- Tories are trying to put in they would exclude any child who's born in Canada other than to a Canadian citizen or a Canadian permanent resident. Uh, what they're talking about, people who fly in, have a child here, the child gets Canadian citizenship, and then the parent and the child fly out. One thing that they don't talk about, though, are the tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of people who are here on student or work permits and are often here for multiple years. Are, mm. we, going to, are we going to bar the children born to those people, too? Uh, has this been a problem in the past? Has this no. been an issue? I mean, as I stated, Stats Canada numbers saying these numbers are actually going down. Yeah, I, I've never heard it be an issue. And the economic argument makes me scratch my head, because let's assume a child's born in Canada. This baby cannot sponsor his or her parents until they're at least 19, and then on top of that, after they've worked in Canada for at least three years and have accumulated pretty good annual income for those three years. So we're talking about a potential chain immigration 22, 23, 25 years in the future. And second, if this child comes back, we've actually benefited from someone else, some other country, raising a child to age 19 or 20. 
And now they're coming back, and we've got a taxpayer for the next 40 years, and we invested nothing in that person. Hmm. So the economic argument, I, I never understand the economic argument, because this person is just going to be a bonus when they come back here. So is this about uh, uh, um, uh, couples or a mother that will come here, give birth, and then leave, and then the child comes back at a later date? When they come back as, as an as adult or a near adult. But even, even talking about, I, I listened to your preamble, even talking about them coming back and accessing our provincial health care coverage, remember that in Ontario, for example, if you've been out of Canada for a significant amount of time, you don't get OHIP coverage until you've been here and made Ontario your principal residence for at least 91 days. And that rule is designed to discourage people from sitting overseas, getting sick, and then automatically plugging into our health care system. The, the system has protections against that. And this has been going on since 1947, the, the system That's that right. we're currently uh, involved in. I mean, Canada being a land of immigrants, how important is this policy? Uh, the citizenship by birth on Canadian soil? Yes. What other option do we have, really? Hmm. Uh, it's like, where, where do we draw the line? Where do we say that this person is coming here as a birth tourist or they're coming here to work. When we start making these distinctions, who are we going to exclude? And how much money are we going to spend chasing after, as you say, just a few hundred children a year? Was this an issue in the 60s, 70s, 80s? Has it always been sort of a back burner issue with people? Um, like I said, I've been doing immigration law for 30 years. I've never really heard of it being a big issue. Once in a while, someone will murmur about it, but it's 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 never been an issue. And as I said before, I think the economic benefits to having these people come back, these children come back, outweigh any possible cost. Uh, the fact that we would have someone come back if they're 18 or 19 or 20 and spend the rest of their life here, that's a bonus for Canadian taxpayers. Uh, this petition initially started in Richmond, B.C. Is this, is this more a Western issue than it is an Eastern issue? Does that matter? I, I can't speak to that. I've, I've read what's on Global News where they said that there are these baby houses, but there's certainly nothing like that around here, nothing like that in Ontario. Are there people taking advantage of the system? Well, there's people taking advantage to every system. But how many are there? Trivial. Trivial number, and the benefits outweigh that. How do we compare to other countries on this? I can't answer that. I, I don't know, because I don't know what happens in other countries. I'm sure it happens. But again, the, the idea of getting back a young person to come to Canada to stay the rest of their life, that's, how can that not be a benefit? Uh, is this an issue, do you think, that resonates with Canadians in any way? Uh, I would think not. Uh, the number is so small. I doubt it's even on their radar. When I, got the, was I, when I was invited to speak today, I was actually surprised that this is an issue. Uh, does this reflect on other issues within our immigration system that need to be addressed? Is this a high priority? Well, I do find it funny that it's the Tories who put it into their policy platform uh, because we've had the Trudeau government in place for three years and the Trudeau government has done very little on changing our citizenship rules or immigration rules. So we're in the interesting position, they're basically following the Harper government rules. So we're in the interesting position where the Tories are criticizing the Liberals for doing policy, following rules and policies that the Tories put in place. Hmm. I don't think anyone sees the irony of that. Can you see this becoming an issue moving forward? No. No. You know, we're talking, it seems that immigration issues have, have been uh, at the forefront in the last year or so, uh, especially with uh, people jumping the queue and coming in through open border crossings and then uh, trying to, uh, asylum seekers, then trying to claim some sort of refugee status. Is this all tied to that? Uh, the fact that someone's trying to make this a dog whistle policy or dog whistle issue, it would be tied together. But most immigration issues are not matters of legislation. It's a matter that the uh, immigration bureaucracy is not properly funded. They don't have the manpower to properly uh, deal with all the applications they have and all the people coming here. What is the biggest challenge for you or your clients in coming to this country and bringing people to this country? 
I would say essentially the bureaucracy. As I said, they don't have enough manpower, and the amount of manpower, whether it be a refugee claim or a citizenship application or, or a work permit application, the amount of manpower that immigration has allocated to all these things. And I see a lot of very, very good people that I would like to see in Canada, people I'd like to see be my neighbors or own the business down the road from me, and I can't help them. Uh, because the bureaucracy cannot handle the number of people who want to come here. And in the last 10 or 15 years, the rules have become so restrictive and so hard. The underlying principles are the same. I can still sponsor my spouse. I can still bring someone here who's a skilled worker. But they've made it so hard for people to come here that people become frustrated. These good people I talk about, they become frustrated and they don't bother applying. Uh, what is, what do you hear is the biggest reason for people coming to this country? Why do they all want to come here? Um, there's a number of reasons. There's the old fashioned one. People do fall in love with Canadians or Canadians fall in love with them, or they come to school here and decide they like it, or they come here to work and decide they like it. Most of my clients, they're just, they're just people who are taking a particular direction in their life. They, have, they see an opportunity to have a good life. They see an opportunity to live in a society that they like, to live in a city they like. It's amazing how many people like Hamilton because of all the different things the city offers. And so most of the people, they're simply advancing on their life. This is a better opportunity for them. They're not, they're not necessarily leaving something they don't like. Most of them simply see this as a slightly better place, and maybe there's someone special here for them. If you are from another place and you want to come here, how difficult is that journey? What do you have to do? Any application is going to take at least one year, and uh, you're going to have to spend dozens of hours just filling out documents and getting documents for our government. And most of those documents, I think, are now unnecessary because I've seen how they did the same applications 15, 20 years ago, and we didn't need all of this. And the system's no better now. It's just more complicated. So what are your chances of getting in this country? Me? Uh, the only reason I'm here is because I was born in Hamilton. <laughs> <laughs> no, <laughs> they I mean... Don't want, they don't want lawyers in here. They don't want lawyers So, but seriously, if, if you're coming from... Say, whether And does it matter where you're coming from? Say you're coming from Europe. Say you're coming from Africa. Wherever. What, what are your chances? Uh, the system is colorblind. It does not recognize where you're coming from. It, it does not say that someone from Asia is uh, a plus five and someone from Europe. Mm -hmm. So someone who is fluent in English or French, relatively young, has a job offer here would be nice, has a high level of education. Those are the people we want here and, those, and, and have good job skills too. And we have a merit system unlike the United States, which, which I understand still has the lottery system. I don't know about the Americans, um, but I, we do have a, a merit-based system. We have different aspects. We have, you can bring someone as a family member, you can come under a merit system, uh, and we also have some room for refugees. Uh, that being said, can you break that down? Out of 10 that would come in, where would they all be from uh, as far as those categories? Would 60% be... Um, obviously, uh, uh, preferred citizens, education, job, this sort of thing. Uh, would it be 60% and then 20%, the rest 30%, maybe family? How do you divide that up? Um, now now I'm, I'm having to really estimate. Canada brings in over 300,000 permanent residents a year. And I think under... Overseas refugee sponsorships were at the range of fifteen to twenty thousand a year. In Canada, refugees, I think it's in the range of maybe twenty to thirty thousand. Everyone else is brought because they have a family member here, a spouse, mm -hmm. or they're brought because of their own education and work experience. So it's tough to get here. Well, the system can only absorb so many people. I, you know, I was criticizing the system earlier being overly complicated. 300,000 people is a lot of people. We have, what, 36 million in Canada. And that really is where the conversation should start. How many people can our society absorb comfortably? And then after that, how many people are we going to bring in because they have relatives here? How many are we going to allow in as refugees? And refugees, as you mentioned, that we don't have a lot of control over that sometimes. And how many people are we going to break 
allow in because of their skills. So the conversations in the newspaper recently are mainly about irregular migrants, but I think the conversation should be, how many people can we comfortably absorb? And what categories do we want them to be in? And then, and then make it easier to bring those people here. So uh, talk about those numbers. Do we need more? Have we got enough? Are we bringing in too many I- I- as far as being able to take care of them? I'm probably the last person you should ask that question. Because <laughs> I, I, I want people to come here. Yeah. Uh, but I can tell you on the economic categories, I'm, I do a lot of economic class applications. I'm frustrated. I really am frustrated because I, I meet some really, really good people, people that Canada would benefit from coming here, and I simply can't bring them here, simply because maybe they, they don't have the right job offer or maybe they haven't worked in Canada long enough or maybe they don't have the right education. And, and they're so close to being able to come here. And I know they're going to do well. I know they're going to do well, but I just can't fit them into the system. The system is very very bureaucratic. It's, it's graphs and charts and do you have this certificate or that certificate. Considering this is such a sensitive issue and divisive in some ways, I guess, uh, is there any way to simplify it? Is that possible? I came, I, I grew up in an era where it was simplified 30 years ago. Things were a lot easier. One thing that's missing is individual officers, immigration officers are not given the decision-making authority they used to. Now it's all on charts and graphs, and it's buried in offices, you know, some some processing center. We don't see anyone. The Hamilton Immigration Office. Uh, I still have a lot of respect for the staff, but the staff is less. They would they would be able to use the discretion as officers of the Queen. They would, could use their discretion to say whether or not someone could come here. And often they would, it would be in that gray area, and they would say, okay, I'm going to let you in. You're clearly a good person to come here. So I think a revision back to a simpler system and a system where the officers, we respect their authority, we respect their experience, uh, that would be a move forward. Hmm. Is it easier to get into the United States than it is Canada? Uh, probably not. We're hearing some things coming out of the United States, economic class applicants in particular, uh, a lot of those programs seem to be closing. So, uh, despite the difference in immigration systems, it's no easier to get into the United States. I can only speak anecdotally, but it seems that the American system is closing down a bit. Hmm. All right, Robert Young has been with us, certified immigration specialist with Eisenberg and Young, uh, talking about birth tourism. Uh, what is it, and uh, is it really an issue in this country? And at this point, it doesn't appear to be. Robert, thanks so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Bye-bye. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. The Conservatives held their convention over the weekend in Halifax. Uh, you might remember just before that, uh, PC or sorry, uh, Conservative Maxime Bernier uh, quit and said he was going to start his own party, sort of uh, as the, the uh, convention was getting underway. Uh, let's bring in Michael Tope, Troy Media Syndicated columnist, contributor to the Washington Times, to talk about this. His latest column, which you can find uh, in Troy Media, uh, the Tories are better off without Maxime Bernier, the rebel Quebec MP, may have satisfied his fragile ego by starting a no-name party, but the risk is far greater than the reward. Michael Tobe is with us now. Michael, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. My pleasure, Scott. So as I mentioned, we chatted about uh, this prior to the weekend and uh, the convention and such, and and, and I guess some were surprised that uh, Maxime Bernier would exit the way that he did. Mm -hmm. That being said, uh, many also thought that it was a lot better that he did than to actually take this into the convention and have him suck all the air out of the room. So that being said, how much did all this Maxime Bernier conversation dominate the convention? It dominated the conversation probably for a few days, and it will dominate for a few more, simply because we have to sort of see what Bernier actually does with his so far nameless political party that has no social media or web presence whatsoever, and whether he's able to attract anybody, shall we say, impressive former MPs, former MPPs, MLAs, staffers, uh, conservative pundits, commentators, anyone 
to sort of either link with him to run as a candidate or to represent the party in, in some fashion, either as a spokesperson or just a general endorser. I think that that's the reason why it dominated for so long. Plus, if you also add in a poll that was taken by a company called um, Abacus Data, and you may have actually had some of their representatives on before, Scott, I'm not sure, on your program. Uh, Abacus has been around for a few years. What they basically said is that a nameless Maxime Bernier-led party, as of right now, would get about 13%. Now, they're saying that is spread right across nationally, so you have little pockets here and there. That's a lot higher than many of us suggested uh, Maxime Bernie would probably end up receiving in the 2019 federal election if he's able to form the party, get some candidates, and move forward. But a lot of that can be sort of traced to the initial euphoria of something different. There will obviously be some people who will be attracted to Maxime Bernier's libertarian points of view on issues such as, say, abolishing supply management and other things. They may be attracted, say, to any sort of person that he picks up, as I said before, who has a bit of a name or some cachet to him or her or them, and that might be an impressive sort of lead-in. But in reality, and I sort of alluded to it in my column, Maxime Bernier has sort of been known as the enfant terrible of Canada, or the, you know, the, the terrible little child, the, the problem child, so to speak, in conservative politics, not because of his ideas. His ideas are actually very good. The problem is him, and he's just never had, um, you know, uh, uh, people have always been very concerned about his political acumen or judgment. He just doesn't strike people as a leader, which is why I think in the very, very end last year against Andrew Scheer, when they were sort of running neck to neck uh, for the Conservative Party leadership race, and Maxime Bernier had taken the first 12 polls, the 13th poll slid over to Andrew Scheer for a variety of reasons, and, you know, and obviously we'll get into them a little bit. But you know, in the grand scheme of things, I think that Maxime Bernier sort of just is what he is, and I think a lot of people will be very... Uh, disappointed by what they see and by what a lot of conservatives know is sort of the way he is and the type of person he is. And quite frankly, he's just not going to be a strong leader. He can't be. The man just has such a fragile ego that he couldn't handle the result of losing to Andrew Scheer. He started to attack his own leader in his own party. He finally decided to throw out a whole series of tweets about multiculturalism and diversity that just blew all the doors open. And people have just had enough, and I think he had had enough, so he parted ways. This is just a ridiculous way of doing things. What's his objective moving forward? Because uh, as uh, you know, many had said in the party, what's your objective here? Is your objective to uh, push a party which doesn't stand a chance, or is it to uh, stop uh, the liberals in the next election? Is the convention worried? Were people at the convention worried that this is going to split the vote? Not enough to do any damage uh, as far as uh, you know, a legitimate political party, but just enough to spoil it for the conservatives. It could be. I mean, that is a, that's obviously a big problem. And the worry is that he plays spoiler, that what I'm suggesting is going to happen, I think we talked about this last week, the best I really can see him doing is earning maybe a couple seats at best, including maintaining his own in the riding of Bose, which is really almost a dynasty of sorts, because his father, Gilles Bernier, who used to be a member of the old progressive conservative party and sat as an MP for many years, and his son, Maxime, have held that seat for a long, long time. Other than that, and maybe one or two others here and there that might be in play, and maybe getting, if he's lucky, about 5% nationally, because I can't really see much more than that. I mean, look at, for example, the Green Party of Canada, a very different organization, been around for many years, have held a few seats in the federal parliament, and they struggle each and every year to hit that 5% barrier. And generally speaking, they get under it, 4.5%, 4.6%. I really can't see Maxime Bernier, based on his you know, questionable history, his questionable ideas at times, and his questionable political judgment, which I think is the biggest drawback, I can't see him pulling that much to be in a spoiler in all these ridings. 
I think it's going to be hard enough, Scott, for him to somehow field 100 to 125 candidates. And that's in a pool of 338 in this country. I don't even think he can get a third. I think it's going to be very difficult for him to do unless he's just going to basically get a whole bunch of sacrificial lambs and placeholders to sit in riding after riding after riding. I just think that although people want to make this a story, they want to say that Maxime Bernier has the personal and political appeal to, you know, to basically capture an enormous amount of support from coast to coast to coast in this country. I don't see it, simply because conservatives know what Maxime Bernier is like. We know the, the good, the bad, and the ugly of this man. And trust me, when it comes time to campaign, and we sense, or, they, or at least Andrew Scheer and the Tories sense, that Maxime Bernier could play a bit of a spoiler here and there in some writings, they're going to turn up the heat, they're going to change the channel, and they're going to bring out a lot of the stuff that some people certainly within the political scene know, but a lot of people don't know about Bernier in the outside, and that will probably end everything. So over and above uh, the Maxime Bernier element of the con- uh, convention, what were, what were some of the other key parts to come out of this that are worth noting? Uh, aside from Bernier himself? Yes. Well, I think what a lot of people saw was that there were some pretty intense uh, political discussions that were held during the convention, including on issues like abortion. So what they saw is that, well, quite frankly, like most political parties, the Conservative Party of Canada has different groups under its political tent who have different series of interests. Some are more fiscally conservative, some are more socially conservative, some are just sort of uh, libertarians in their perspective, um, and others are just sort of right-leaning types who have their pet issue or issues that they want to push forward. So even though the, um, the media got a little bit agitated by the fact that there was this pretty intense discussion of abortion, and there was some discussion about the whole nature of citizenship and whether you know, people with a, with a birthright should be protected in that sense, and the conservatives have decided that there has to be a bit more to it, which I honestly think most Canadians would agree with, and decided that a conservative-led government would not support something of that nature. Other than those things, really what you mostly saw was a confirmation or an affirmation, if you like, that the Conservative Party of Canada is, unlike what Maxime Bernier and other disgruntled conservatives may be saying, really stands for small-c conservative values. You know, smaller government, uh, lower taxes, more individual rights and freedoms, um, a free market economy, trade liberalization, etc., etc. The things that, at least in in terms of the right side of the political spectrum, of referring directly to conservatives, these are the things we hold near and dear to our heart that we cherish and that we promote, both, you know, federally, provincially, and sometimes municipally, depending on the individual, as ideas that we think would be best for Canada to operate on on a day-to-day basis, no matter what sort of uh, parameter or segment we're looking at. So really what people got out of there was a policy convention that was very typical of what you would see with the Liberal Party or the NDP Uh, or the Greens. Many talked about how important Andrew Scheer his speech would be at this convention, especially with uh, unity and what's what, what had happened with Bernier. Right. What about his speech? Uh, how did he perform? His speech was very good. I mean, people have been sort of saying, well, did it really resonate with a lot of Canadians? Did he have the inspirational voice and ideas that people are looking for? Did he actually start to reveal himself more now, you know, and now more Canadians will begin to understand why Andrew Scheer should be an alternative to Justin Trudeau and gravitate towards his party, etc., etc. Look, Andrew Scheer is a different political animal than Stephen Harper was. Andrew Scheer is a different political animal than, say, Brian Mulroney was. He's different than Joe Clark. He's different than many other conservative leaders. We can go back to Diefenbeck or McDonald. It doesn't matter who. Every leader puts his or her own stamp of approval on the job. And Andrew Scheer has tried to sell himself in a number of different ways. That he's fiscally and socially conservative, that he is tolerant, you know, that he wants to ensure that all people who either live in this country or come to live in this country feel included as part of the economic machine, that they're playing a role to raise their families, you know, in in peaceful ways, that democracy reigns supreme, that taxes and government involvement are restricted as much as possible to make their lives better. 
He wants to basically get government out of your lives. Not completely, because if it was completely, we would have total anarchy. As you know, conservatives believe that there should be limited amounts of government and limited amounts of taxes and things that are helpful in that fashion. And that's what his speech really went into, trying to sort of show people that Andrew Scheer is not just the same old type of conservative that we see all the time, that yes, he has the values that other conservative leaders, be it a prime minister, premier, etc., or a mayor, for example, have touted before him, but that he also understands how conservatism needs to move more forward into the future, you know, through discussions of making sure that new immigrants feel welcome in this country, that there are programs in place that are preserved, so to speak, such as, say, health care and education via the public funding programs, but that the private sector also has a role to play to improve or enhance these issues. I think this is really what his speech covered for the most part. And the nice thing was he got to say it and he made, was able to say all these things without worrying like an albatross like Maxime Bernier hanging over his neck. Mm. By Bernier having left the party, that actually gave Andrew Scheer the chance to move forward. Like the problem child of the enfant terrible, as I call them, was out of the way. And now the, now the leader of this party can move forward you know, with most of the party united his, with him to sort of represent the small C conservative values that this party represents, period. All right, let's change gears, go to NAFTA. Uh, it, it appears now that, uh, that Donald Trump has a love affair with Mexico. He's courting okay. them. He's left Canada standing on the outside. Why Mexico first? How do we separate the policy from the rhetoric? Well, why Mexico first was very simple. They were more open to discussions. Canada has refused to enter any sort of bilateral negotiation and or agreement with the United States up until, shall we say, today. Let me, let me interrupt you there, Michael, because uh, other pundits will say, well, you know, there's, there's uh, other deals that had to be done with Mexico first before we could proceed with Canada. In part, but I mean, there was, but if it had been done in reverse, the, the same thing would have happened. There are certain things that both Mexico and Canada have in particular that are important to their nations and dealings that they directly have with the United States that are of some necessity to talk about. So is Canada over a barrel now? I don't necessarily think so. I, it's, it's hard to say. I mean, it's really going to depend how this week goes. I think that's going to be key. We know that Christia Freeland is going to be entering back into negotiations, but now the timetable has been really narrowed. Whereas people were saying beforehand, well, you know, the United States and Mexico have been talking for a few weeks. We don't believe that it's really moving forward. You know, there'll probably be a bump in the road. It's going to take months till anything's resolved. And who knows if anything will be resolved in the end. What they discovered was the Mexican government, who is actually led by a populist-type person himself, who is a fellow who is very left-wing, but sort of follows Donald Trump to some degree, uh, Peña Nieto, who basically in the theory of ensuring that everything is protected, economic nationalism, that trade is, you know, is important, but that the trade within the country's boundaries is far more integral. So they actually found some common ground, even though ideologically, not that Trump is really a conservative or a Republican, as I've said to you many times before, but as two populists who could sort of think along the same lines about what they like as people and what they think would be best for their countries, they were able to actually find a way to resolve issues and move forward, or, or so it appears. Canada has sort of sat back, and even though obviously the channels below the radar still had trade representatives speaking to one another, there wasn't a lot going on above ground, which means that Canada and the U.S., as Donald Trump sort of alluded to yesterday, were really not talking all that much. And that has kind of been confirmed by the fact that Christia Freeland has abandoned her European trip and she's heading back to the U.S., or she's arrived in the U.S., I believe, by now, and is going to deal with the White House in some fashion to ensure that things move faster. So are we over a barrel? It's, it's hard to say. I think that Canada basically waited too long. They tapped their foot. They, they thumbed their nose. They were furious at the Americans, which is the one thing I think we can genuinely say most Canadians at least understand, if nothing else. But for that reason, and based on 
their own stubbornness, because as much as the U.S. president is stubborn, I think it's now pretty fair to say that the Canadian prime minister and his senior advisors are pretty stubborn, too. They put themselves into a major hole where they need to rectify things and fast, because if we don't deal with it quickly, the auto industry in Canada, which is the big part of this puzzle, not just for NAFTA, but for all future dealings between Canada and the United States, whether they sign a bilateral agreement or protect the trilateral, which is NAFTA, that our industry, including the auto parts makers and many people who are employed by companies that deal specifically with that industry, are going to be in huge jeopardy. Don't just sit there and think that Canada's been doing all the right things because they've been fighting back. Pushing back and fighting back is certainly acceptable. In the history of Canada-U.S. relations, we've seen many historical episodes of that. But it's now quite clear, as quite frankly I and many others have been sort of suggesting for a while, that by doing nothing, Canada is actually sort of working itself right into the pause of Donald Trump and has made it actually easier for him to get most of the reforms he wants to NAFTA, and I'm sure he will do away with that name and call it something else, mm. and that's fine. But he's going to be, they've basically given him a lot of control in this issue, whereas before, yeah, the United States really did sort of control these discussions, but at least the, Canada and Mexico could have formed some sort of a united front to go against him. Now what's happened is Mexico has basically signed their side deal with the U.S., so they're protected one way or the other. The Mexicans do want the Canadians to still be part of NAFTA and part of this agreement, but Canada now really has to play catch-up and sort of make arrangements and agreements within the bilateral that the U.S. and Mexico have designed, rather than Canada playing an integral role to ensure that the trilateral was still moving at the same time. So that being said, and we don't have much time left here, Michael, does this leave Canada with much bargaining room here, with much wiggle room, considering the dairy sector and the auto sector? Minimal. And the big problem, and you've highlighted as well, is supply management through the dairy sector and the auto sector are now sort of teetering in the direction of the United States. So when Donald Trump directly says, and he's quite correct in saying it, that he's opposed to supply management, and Canada basically sits back and says, well, we're not going to touch it, that's a major problem and a major issue. And what Trump was sort of alluding to yesterday during his press conference in front of his desk is that, you know, either we're going to have an agreement with Canada in some way, shape, or form, or we're going to have tariffs on autos. Hmm. Now, that's something, you know, I mean, a lot of people say, well, he can't do this, he's just talking, you know, there's a whole process in place to either dissolve NAFTA or fix things, adjust things, lay tariffs on, you need congressional support. We know all that exists, but remember, Donald Trump is the President of the United States, whether you like it or not. It's his rules as well. And trust me, he doesn't care about process. He cares about getting things done, and he will, in spite of what people are saying. Michael Tobis, and with us, Troy Media, syndicated columnist and contributor to the Washington Times. Michael, as always, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. My pleasure. Have a great day. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML.